The following message is by Pastor Brandon Dyer of Windsor Christian Fellowship. For more information on our church, visit www.windsorchristianfellowship.org. I'd like to ask you to take your Bible with me this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 12. We are back into the book of Matthew. And for me, it's a little bit like seeing an old friend again. I really enjoyed uh, coming back after a few weeks off. We really took the whole month of December off from this study through the book of Matthew. Um, but really, it, this week, I really enjoyed studying through uh, this passage, uh, being reacquainted with the book, uh, particularly This is an interesting passage that we're going to be looking at this morning within Matthew chapter 12, um, and you'll see that in a minute. But I I think it's also one that will be an encouragement to us as well. But let me go ahead and start out by asking a question. How many of you have heard of the unpardonable sin or the unforgivable sin? Good. Uh, I won't ask how many have committed the unpardonable sin, but this is really one of those topics that has really been shrouded in mystery. There's been a lot of confusion around what the unpardonable sin actually is, this unforgivable sin, really called both things. It's one of those topics that there's been a lot of questions about, even throughout the history of the church. You see uh, all different people had different ideas uh, about exactly what this sin is. Even great authors like Herman Melville, who wrote Moby Dick, or Nathaniel Hawthorne, who wrote The Scarlet Letter, they incorporated the unpardonable sin, or at least their perspective of what that is within their great books, uh, Moby Dick and The Scarlet Letter. But really, they didn't bring any clarity to the subject at all. They were really just writing it for the sake of their own books. But maybe for some of you, you have considered at certain points in your life, uh, or maybe about other people within your life, you've wondered, maybe I, or maybe somebody within my life, has actually committed a sin that would be considered unpardonable, that would be actually unforgivable in the eyes of of God, that, that maybe you have done something or, or consistently done something over and over and over again to where God would finally step back away from you and say, absolutely not, I will not forgive you. That is unpardonable. You are unforgivable in this area. Or maybe, again, you've wondered this about uh, someone that you love. Well, maybe my friend, maybe my relative has actually committed this kind of sin to where they are actually not even able to be forgiven. Somebody who has completely turned their back on God, and so God is turning his back on that person. But it's really important, as we approach this passage this morning, and consider what Jesus says here, because we need to know what he says, particularly about this. This is really important. There are those who truly struggle. Have I done something unforgivable in the eyes of God? And I think a lot of the problem around this topic, this this subject of the unpardonable sin, and the reason that we don't understand it is because we've made it ambiguous. We've, we've kind of cast onto, oh, a, a, a mystery of sorts, a fog in a way. So when we look at it, it's kind of like, well, uh, it could be this, it could be this, it could be this sin over here. Um, but really, it's us who have clouded it because Jesus is not ambiguous in this passage. He doesn't cause confusion by his words. You know, when we think about something like an unpardonable sin, we often... What, what, what comes to mind immediately and what's highlighted in our minds are the, what we would consider really big sins, right? We would think of something like murder, right? Or adultery, 
or some kind of raging anger or even maybe something like suicide. Things that in our minds are just a really big deal, a really big problem that surely if if God isn't going to forgive certain things, it's going to be things like that. So we tend to think that those are unforgivable in God's eyes. Yet as we look at this passage, we're not going to see any of this at all. We're going to see, really, the inference there is adultery is forgivable. So like last week we looked at Romans, and we don't continue in sin because we know grace is going to abound more and more. So we don't sin on purpose because we know grace is going to be there. But at the same time, those sins that I have mentioned, like adultery and like uh, raging anger or murder, those are forgivable in the eyes of God. So my hope is that you're encouraged with the words of Christ here and that by his grace, those who may believe they have committed this level of sin would be assured of the love and forgiveness of God and Christ. But I think Christ is very clear within, these passage, within this passage this morning on what exactly the unpardonable sin is and the, the kind of person who would commit this kind of sin. But before we get to exactly what Jesus means by this, we need to look at what leads up to it. So look at Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan... He is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So this whole thing begins with a miracle that Jesus performs for a man who is blind and mute and has, uh, is being oppressed or possessed by a demon. So this guy is blind. He can't see anything. He can't say anything. And he's possessed by a demon. I mean, talk about serious problems. This man was in both spiritual and physical darkness. He could not see anything physically at all. And he could not see anything spiritually at all. He was being oppressed by this Demon. I mean, can you imagine living in a state like this? It's just a short verse, what it says about this demon-possessed man. But can you imagine living in this situation? You can't say anything. You can't see anything. And on top of all of that, there's this demon who is oppressing you, making you do things that you do not even want to do. There are others within the gospel who are possessed by demons, yet they can, they can see, they can speak. They're, they're forced to do things that they don't want to do, but at least they can see what's going on. Imagine being blind and unable to speak, and this demon oppresses you, and you uh, cannot do anything about it. I mean, just a totally, 
torturous situation that this man would have been in. But it also serves as a great picture of where you and I are apart from Jesus. This man was totally spiritually and physically blind, but apart from Christ, you and I are completely spiritually blind, not able to see And also following after the devil. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul lays it out very clearly. That apart from Christ, we are blind and we are following after the prince of the power of the air. We are following after Satan. So this is really, this guy serves as a great picture of who we are even apart from Christ. And this verse, again, is very short when it says how the rest of all of this gets played out. So this man is brought to Jesus. It very clearly just says, Jesus goes ahead and heals him of his inability to speak and his blindness. What's implied is that the demon is pushed away from this man. And all the, the crowd, what this does is it causes the crowd to begin to ask a question. Do you see that there in verse uh, 23? Could this be the son of David? So they see this happen. They see Jesus heal this man, pull the demon out, give him his sight, give him the ability to speak. And the question that they ask is, could this be the son of David? And that's really important for them to be asking in this time. Because what they were really asking by that question is, is this the Messiah? By saying, is this the son of David? They're asking, is this Messiah? They knew that the Messiah was going to come from the line of David. So is this the son of David? Is this the one that the prophets had been talking about? Is this the one that we have been waiting for and longing for to come for hundreds and hundreds of years? And when I see them ask this question after going through these first 12 chapters of the book of Matthew, in my mind, it's just like ding, 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 ding. You're finally getting it. You're finally starting to see a little bit of who Jesus is. They're finally getting it. It's finally starting to click. He's done miracle after miracle after miracle in the eyes of these people. And finally, they're at the point where they're asking themselves, could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah that they had been waiting for? But what we need to remember about these people, this crowd at the time, is that they were not expecting somebody like Jesus. They weren't expecting the Messiah to act as Jesus was acting. They weren't expecting somebody to come and deliver people in terms of being healed and so forth. They were expecting somebody to come and deliver, deliver them from the oppression of the Roman Empire that was over them. So they were expecting Jesus to, or a Messiah to come and to deliver them from the physical oppression that was over them in terms of the Roman Empire, the Roman government that was huge during this period of time. That's what they were expecting and even wanting in a Messiah. So as they're watching Jesus do the, these miracles, they, they finally get to that point of, okay, well, maybe it's not exactly like we thought. Maybe it's more along these lines. Christ is doing battle, not over the physical oppression of Rome that is over them. He's doing battle over the spiritual oppression that is over them. So Jesus is going toe to toe with Satan. He's not going toe to toe per se with the Roman Caesar. And this would have been difficult for the first century Jew to understand. This is not who they were expecting. This is not what they were expecting at all to look like. But they are still left with that question after Jesus does this miracle. Could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah we've been waiting for? You, you almost get the, the picture, when they ask this question, that they're, they're really on the edge of believing it. They're, they're starting to think it. 
is starting to make a little more sense. They're on that edge, that precipice of belief about all they needed was a shove in the right direction. For somebody to just come alongside with them and say, yes, affirm it, push them into that belief. And maybe you found yourself in that kind of position before. Maybe even as it relates to your own conversion and how you came to Christ. Maybe you were on the edge and thinking, man, is Jesus the one who came and died for my sin and, and forgave me and all that? Is that really all true? Could that stuff be true? And God brings somebody into your life and kind of says, Yes, let let me show you from the scriptures that this is true, that Jesus has come, that he has died for sinners, and that he has come to seek and to save those who were lost. Maybe you've experienced that sort of position that that this crowd was in as they consider, is this the Messiah? Could this be the son of David? All they needed was a push in the right direction. All they needed was a little bit of a shove. Maybe some confirmation from the Pharisees that are, that are also within this passage. Maybe the Pharisees, if they had just confirmed, yes, crowds, this could very well be the Messiah. This could be the one that we have waited for. The, one, the ones, these Pharisees, who consider themselves to be the shepherds of Israel. Maybe, maybe if they, as the shepherds of Israel, would just push them a little bit and say, you know what? Very well, maybe. It's possible. But look instead at how the Pharisees respond in verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So essentially is what they say, no, this is not the Messiah. It is by Satan that this man, Jesus, does what he is doing. But I want you to remember who these Pharisees are. These are the supreme religious leaders within this land and this time period. They didn't last a very long time, but at this point, they were very powerful in terms of the sway that they had with the people. We've seen Jesus engage them at different points throughout these chapters. We know uh, even from Mark's gospel that these Pharisees in particular came directly from Jerusalem. So they may even have had a little more power, a little more sway with the crowds than the normal Pharisee. But what we've seen overall with these religious leaders is that they are dying to catch Jesus doing something that he should not be doing. They're trying so hard to find something in Jesus that they can charge him on. They want to get him to trial and they want to get him executed. You can even see that in verse 14 in chapter 12. They are conspiring together. They're trying to figure out how they can destroy Jesus. So the crowds see what Jesus has done in the, the healing of this man, the exercising of this demon, and they wonder if he is the Messiah. The Pharisees hear about what Jesus has done, and instead of wondering with the crowds about the possibility of Jesus being this Messiah, instead they deny that he could be and say that he did his works by the devil. Now notice that the Pharisees don't deny the fact that Jesus exercised this demon. They don't deny the fact that he, that he actually did perform this miracle for this man. But they don't attribute his power to himself or to God. Instead, they attribute his power to Satan. And what they need to clearly see, what we need to clearly see within this, is that the Pharisees are clearly rejecting the Messiah. They're totally rejecting here Jesus as the Messiah, refusing to accept him. The people, the crowd say, maybe this is him. The Pharisees say, absolutely not. He does these things with the power of Satan. This is clear and utter rejection and so important for us to see within the the book 
of Matthew here. Like, like the Gospel of John says, Jesus came to his own, but his own received him not. They didn't take him in. They didn't believe in him as the Messiah that he very obviously was. But you know, the Pharisees didn't need to say anything. They didn't even need to say, no, he does his power by Beelzebub. Jesus knew, verse 25 says, he looked at them and knew what was in their minds. Look at verse 25. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus knew their thoughts. He looked at them and knew exactly what they were thinking. They didn't even need to open their mouths. He knew. And with that knowledge, he launches into an explanation here of how it would be ridiculous for them to think that he was working by the power of Satan. It's actually pretty interesting to see how quickly Jesus dismantles all of these notions of the Pharisees. A kingdom or a city or a house that's divided against itself, the only possible result for that place is that it cannot stand. It'll, it'll fall immediately to the ground. So this is really simple and to the point. Any kingdom, any city or house that, that is divided cannot stand united as one. Jesus says if Satan is running around and casting out demons... By, by himself, by the power of Satan, then he's working against himself. It would make absolutely no sense for Satan to go around to different human beings who are being oppressed by a demon and to cast that demon away from them. It doesn't make any sense for Satan to do this at all. But what Jesus explains to them is that it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that he is doing these exorcisms, that he is doing these miracles. And since it is by the power of the Spirit that he do, does these exorcisms, then the kingdom of God has, in fact, come. That the kingdom is present among the people. So no, he doesn't do these things by the power of Satan. That would be strange for Satan to work against himself in this way. What is being displayed in these exorcisms is the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the kingdom of God, both of which are experiential realities for the lives of every Christian. So we live as members of the kingdom of God, and we also live as those who have the Spirit of God within us. This is a life-changing reality, the fact that the kingdom is here, that the Spirit of God is within each and every one who profess Christ. Like we've been tracing through this whole series, the, the authority of our king. Well, if we have a king, then certainly he has a kingdom, and a kingdom made of people that have trusted in him and that believe in him, a kingdom that you and I belong to. Like Paul says in Colossians, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. This is an incredible reality to remember. The kingdom has come and Jesus is its king and the same spirit that is at work here in this passage is the same spirit that is at work in you and I today. So Jesus explains to them how ridiculous it would be for Satan to be working against Satan. It it would be like a kingdom or a house or a city that's divided against itself. It cannot stand. But he indicates that it's by the power of the Spirit that he does these things and that the kingdom of God is in their midst as a result. But look at the illustration. Jesus gives an illustration as to his explanation of verse 29. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man Then indeed he may plunder his 
house. Obviously, we've just come through the Christmas season, and one of the, one of the movies that uh, Bethany, my wife, likes to watch every single Christmas is Home Alone. Any Home Alone fans? Come on. Awesome, awesome movie. If you haven't watched it yet, you've got to go home and watch it. It's, it's just a great movie, total classic. But to refresh our memories a little bit, the movie is about this little boy named Kevin, right? And so Kevin, he's a little pain in the neck kind of a kid. But what, he, what ends up happening, he, he lives basically in this mansion. I mean, if you remember the movie, it's like his parents live in this huge, elaborate home in this elaborate neighborhood and so forth. But what ends up happening is his family ends up going away to France for Christmas. Tells you a little more about how much money they had. Crying out loud. They go to France, but Kevin is left home um, over Christmas time. But the problem throughout the movie that Kevin faces are a couple of thieves that are trying to break into his house and, and breaking into all the houses in the neighborhood where everybody is gone for Christmas. And so Kevin realizes this. He finds out when the, the, the thieves are going to be coming to his house on that night. And in that moment, with all, the, with all the manliness he can muster, he says, this is my house. I have to protect it. And so he does. No, he says defend. This is my house. I have to defend it. And so that's exactly what he does. He defends his house throughout this movie. So he shoots him with a BB gun, the hot iron on the face. You know, all the, he torches one of their heads. You guys remember a lot of those different scenes. It's pretty funny stuff. But you see, what the thieves in the movie fail to do, and really it's kind of what the movie is about, what, what the thieves fail to do was bind the strong man. They... In order to plunder the house, in order to steal from the house, they needed to first stop Kevin. They needed to bind Kevin. They needed to bind the strong man or the strong boy, in this case, before they could take anything. And this is what Jesus is saying. In order to plunder Satan's house, in order to plunder Satan's kingdom, he was going to have to first bind the strong man. He was going to have to first bind Satan before he launched into plundering and destroying Satan's house or Satan's kingdom. He overcame the temptation of Satan back in chapter 4, you remember, where Satan comes to him several times and he, he, he overcomes each time and he quotes scripture to Satan. He would soon crush the head of, the sa- head of Satan in his death and resurrection. And with these exorcisms and the miracles and the preaching of the gospel, Jesus was effectively entering into the house of Satan, whom he had bound, and he was plundering Satan's house. He was destroying it. He was destroying all the things that Satan had worked so long to achieve. But now carefully, look at verse 31 with me to see the result of all this. Therefore, so in light of all that Jesus has said, I tell you every sin and blasphemy blasphemy will be forgiven people, but... The blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age and the one to come. So after all of this happens, with the man being healed, the question of the crowd, the denial of the Pharisees, and all of that, we get to this issue of the unpardonable sin. And I think there are a couple of levels to to understanding what the unpardonable or unforgivable sin is. I think there's a a more general understanding and a more specific one to this context. First, Jesus says that every sin and blasphemy, blasphemy will be forgiven, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. So we need to ask ourselves, that raises a pretty important question, what is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? One commentator said this, The blasphemy of the Spirit is a willful suppression 
of the truth about Christ. That's a very basic, uh, good definition. The blasphemy of the Spirit is a willful suppression of the truth about Christ. So it's this purposed, uh, willful, malignant suppression of the truth of Christ that has been clearly revealed by the Spirit. This sin is unforgivable. The person with this kind of uh, purposed disregard against God, toward God, despite the revelation of the Spirit, despite what he or she has seen regarding the revelation of the Spirit of God, they will not be forgiven. But to even get more specific, who within this passage this morning displayed this kind of heart? Pharisees, right? Listen to another comment on this passage. The Pharisees, though they knew the miracles of Christ were wrought by the Spirit of God, they maliciously and obstinately imputed them to the devil with a view to obscure the glory of Christ and indulge their own wicked passions and resentments against Him. So the Pharisees know the work of Christ is by the power of the Holy Spirit. They bring up this excuse that, uh, that it was Satan or Beelzebul that was performing these, these miracles, which it was an excuse. It was total junk. It was something that they decided to come up with. But they needed an excuse, so that's what they gave. But instead of honoring Christ, instead of seeing what He had done, and at least wonder with the crowds, could this be the Son of God? They totally rejected Him. They totally rejected His works. And attributed it all to the devil. And in the process of all of this, instead of again being the good shepherds of Israel, instead of pushing the people, maybe, maybe this could be the Messiah. Instead of leading them that way, they led them astray. They led them into a state of disbelief. Remember the crowds were asking, could this be the Messiah? They were on that cusp. They were were right there. They needed that shove, that confirmation maybe from the Pharisees. And the Pharisees totally swept away any kind of thought of this being the Christ. This is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So we know now what the unpardonable sin is. It is the blaspheme of the Holy Spirit. The general definition of the unpardonable sin is to suppress the truth of Christ that has been revealed by the Holy Spirit, which is exactly what the Pharisees had done. Yet the Pharisees took it even further, and they were beginning to lead the crowds down the same thought that they had in terms of Christ. It was obvious that what Jesus was doing within their presence, within among the crowds, it was obvious that it was by the Holy Spirit, that it was His evident power, And that it was the Christ doing that. But the Pharisees said instead that it was through the power of the devil. This is blasphemy. And they were leading others to believe the same. But you see, the Pharisees are not the last ones to commit this kind of sin. Even within our passage this morning, I didn't quite realize it. When Chris was reading John chapter 5, it mentions that the sin that leads to death. And this could very well be attached with that. The unpardonable sin being the sin that leads to death. This blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But you see, the Pharisees are not the last ones to commit this kind of sin. That we can still commit this sort of sin now and in 
the present. There are those who have been trying to creep into churches for the last couple thousands of years, trying to, to preach a different gospel, trying on purpose to lead the people of God astray with some sort of different message, with some sort of uh, something contrary to the revelation of the Spirit of God as revealed in the Word. There are those who genuinely desire to lead people away from believing in the Messiah, just as these Pharisees did. There's a, there's a whole stream throughout the New Testament, a whole stream of verses that warn the church against the, the coming of false teachers, these wolves uh, in sheep's clothing, from Jesus to Paul to John to Peter to Jude. All of these warn specifically of the dangers of the false teachers who would seek to lead people astray. This blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is something that continues to this day. Listen to one more comment on this subject. The gospel is the key. The kingdom has come in Christ, and the message of that kingdom is the Spirit-revealed gospel. When the gospel is undermined, the Spirit's testimony of Christ is likewise undermined. When this is done malignantly, knowingly, and to the detriment of the church, by those who have been given authority over the church, the Holy Spirit of Christ is blasphemed. This sin is committable today and will be until the coming of the Lord, because the gospel is preached until then. The church must watch and be on a guard for those who come to her in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. They preach another Christ and a different gospel. This is a damning sin. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit. To lead God's people astray against the revelation of the Spirit in Christ. These people seal the deal and they will spend eternity in hell because of their willful suppression of the truth that has been revealed to them. And they seek to bring others with them. These, these kinds of sayings of Christ are not easy to, to take. Again, a lot of times when we think of what Jesus says, we just kind of assume that everything he says is kind of happy. I, I, I often find it funny to see different things, whether it's online or, or hear different people say, like, oh, well, Jesus had just nothing but this really positive, feel-good message, but it's not the truth at all. When you see words like this, he's talking about people who can commit a sin that would be unpardonable, never receiving forgiveness of. It's a hard words to swallow. But there may have been times when you... Uh, I've heard a friend or a family member, and you feel as though they've gotten close to this line, that they've, that they've said things or done things or displayed certain things that in your mind might be some sort of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Maybe you've even heard them outright blaspheme the name of the Spirit or, or the works of Christ as revealed, and it causes you, to, causes you to wonder if they've committed this unforgivable sin. But I want to encourage you in this. That God can and does save blasphemers. Only he knows where this line is. You and I, we, we have no idea when somebody has reached the line of being too far too gone. When they have reached that point of being able to be unpardoned. We don't know when that is. Only he knows when that is. God in Christ can and does same, save those who have blasphemed him. We even have the example of Paul in Acts chapter 26 when he's giving his testimony. He says that he was trying to get the Jews to blaspheme God. He, was, he himself, before he was saved, was trying to get others to blaspheme. He was a Pharisee himself. 
at, the, at that point. He was just like the people, just like the Pharisees within this passage, trying to lead the children of Israel astray, trying to get them to disbelieve in Christ as the Messiah. Yet God, of course, was very merciful to the blasphemer Paul. Only he knows where that line is of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So continue to pray for your friends. Continue to pray for your family members that God would have mercy on their soul. Some of you may have really done battle over if you yourself have committed some sort of sin that is unpardonable. Maybe not necessarily even what we see within our passage this morning, but you've done something that you think that God could not or would not forgive you of. There's something that you think that when you stand before God, that there's something in his back pocket that he's going to pull out, a piece of dirt on you that he has, that he is going to condemn you with. But nothing could be further from the truth. If you are a believer, if you have trusted in Christ, if your faith is in Christ alone, he will not condemn you. You are saved. Although it is incredible to us that that he would choose to have mercy on us, that he would choose to have this grace upon us. It is truly incredible because you know all the things that you've done wrong. You, you can play the highlight reel of all the things that you did that you wish that you had never done, yet God has been so merciful and he has been so gracious to forgive all of us who have believed in Christ of these great sins. My friends, the unforgivable sin is not murder or adultery, or divorce, or homosexuality, or fornication, or anything like that. Those are sins that our God is pleased to forgive. He is pleased to forgive those who come to Him with repentant hearts, in faith, to to trust in Christ. He is pleased to forgive us of those sins. So be comforted in that. It's so easy at times to, to wake up and to feel so guilty. But yeah, as we sang, no, no guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. It's nothing that we have done. It's all according to his mercy and his grace that we are even able to be here this morning, able to come to him and worship, able to have an advocate with Christ, knowing that Christ stands before the Father, pleading on our behalf. So be comforted in the fact, if you know Christ, that he is your Messiah and that there is no sin that you have committed that he has not pardoned. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that for those who are in Christ, cannot commit a sin, that you will pull out against us and say, you're condemned. But that all has been forgiven for those who have faith and trust in you. And that although we have done so many egregious things and that we have committed so many terrible sins against you and maybe even at times in our lives blasphemed your name, that you are so forgiving. Lord, I pray that you'll be with those who do not know you. Lord, I pray that you will convict their souls and bring them to life and understanding to be able to see your great grace. Pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Brandon Dyer, pastor of Windsor Christian Fellowship in Windsor, Maine. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. 
but please do not charge them or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our church online at www.windsorchristianfellowship.org. There, you'll find sermons and other information about our church. If you have a need or would like further information, call 242-0126 or email us at wcfmaine at gmail.com. Our mailing address is Windsor Christian Fellowship, 11 Reed Road, Windsor, Maine, 04363. Windsor Christian Fellowship exists to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ through the evangelization of unbelievers and the edification of believers so that all might be glad in God.